As we continue our way through John chapter 2, there are two things that I want you to keep in mind. First, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, set out to provide for the audience, for the reader, for you and I, a written record, John writes with a particular intent. In John chapter 20, verse 30, he pens that truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Always keep in mind as we work our way through this book that John's gospel is unique for it intends to provoke a decision from the reader. It's a gospel that demands a verdict from the audience, a response. John isn't all that interested in providing a chronological record of Jesus' life in order to appeal to a specific audience like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead, John presents a particular narrative aimed or designed at getting the reader to believe or to place their full confidence, their faith, in two important truths concerning Jesus. One, John wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world, and two, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God, God made flesh, God incarnate, the God-man. And note, absolutely everything that John includes in his gospel narrative concerning Jesus and his earthly ministry intends to accomplish these two very specific aims. The second thing that I want you to keep in mind as we get to John 2 verse 12 is the contextual flow of this chapter. As we saw last Sunday, in the first 11 verses of this chapter, we're provided this amazing story of Jesus transforming water into wine. Not only is this miracle unique as Jesus is first, but as the beginning of signs, verse 11, the symbolism of the miracle is not only obvious, but is very intentional. As we discussed There's so much more behind the events of this wedding in Cana than the plain reading suggests. Because of sin, the wedding party, a picture of the world, was in desperate peril. The joy represented by the wine offered by the world, it had run out. The tap had run dry. Not only could no man apart from Jesus provide a remedy to this fundamental problem, But the story illustrates also the ineffectiveness of religion as well. Six pots of stone present at the wedding celebration sat empty. Though the law incorporated water for a person's outward purification, it was never used in the Levitical law to address man's internal thirst. These stone pots existed, only existed, to provide water aimed at temporary cleansing the temporary cleansing of the outward man. The entire purpose behind John's inclusion of this first miracle, a miracle that none of the other gospel writers include, was to illustrate that Jesus had come to offer this world something radically different than any man or religion could do. Something that he would offer to a thirsty world lacking joy. While religion had left the world outwardly clean, but inwardly thirsty, 
Not so with Christ Jesus. Though religion is all about what we do or refrain from doing to clean ourselves up before God, the gospel of Jesus Christ is instead more focused on what he supernaturally is transforming us into from the inside out. How awesome it is, really, that Jesus offers a drink from living water. Living water that turns into fine wine. And and it's this very context, the ineffectiveness of religion what man does to clean himself before God, versus the effectiveness of Jesus, what he does to transform us before God, that John will now continue to build upon thematically through the rest of this chapter, as well as into chapter 3. Let's dive into our text. John 2, verse 12. We read that after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. As we examine the Gospel of John, it's important to note that he will specifically reference in the Gospel three different Passover celebrations. The first is obviously present here in John chapter 2, when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate along with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. The second Passover is mentioned almost in passing in John chapter 6, verse 4. It doesn't appear that Jesus travels to Jerusalem for the feast. If he does, it's not recorded at all. The third and the final Passover, which will ultimately result in Jesus' death, is first mentioned in John chapter 11, and then kind of thematically will end up covering the last several chapters of the gospel. Now, the reason that this is important is that these three Passovers provide for us a specific time frame for John's narrative and, more importantly, Jesus' earthly ministry. Contrary to those who say Jesus had a three-year ministry, according to John's gospel, it was probably a two-year timeline. Passover 1, coming right after the miracle of changing water into wine, the second, and then the third, two years maybe two and a half at the most. Now consider this scene, these words, that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Because Passover represented God's supernatural deliverance of the Hebrew people from their Egyptian bondage, it was one of the main feasts Jewish people from all over the world would pilgrimage to this holy city to celebrate. Now some 2,000 years Later, after the original Passover, under Roman occupation, there is no question at all that the people of Israel long for God to once again raise up a deliverer just like Moses. Literally, and this is not an exaggeration, approximately a million people from this densely populated region surrounding the Sea of Galilee, which would have included the city of Capernaum, would undertake this journey a journey that would lead them south along the Jordan River Valley before heading up in elevation to Jerusalem. As the people here make this difficult trek from the Jordan through the Judean wilderness, understand the atmosphere. Yeah, it's a difficult hike, but the atmosphere was festive. I mean, the mood was celebratory. As the kids would say, the scene was lit. Imagine this incredible expanse of people. 
I mean, this massive group of people, extending as far as the eye could see, filled with exuberance, national pride, clear anticipation, making their way to the capital city. These people, of which Jesus is in the midst, they're chanting and they're singing. The scene is joyous. It would be like an Atlanta United soccer crowd making their way down Peachtree, headed to Mercedes-Benz, times a thousand, and well, with a lot more Jews. Multiple generations of the same family are walking together. Parents with their children, kids hand-in-hand with their grandparents, cousins with one another, neighbors alongside of neighbors, friends and acquaintances alike. The whole community from Galilee is headed to Jerusalem, And what are they singing? Well, they're singing the Hallel Psalm, Psalms 113 through 118. This is the soundtrack for the journey. The anticipation, the excitement. It was palpable the closer and closer you got to Jerusalem. The closer you got to the city, the more the air filled with wonder. The people were headed to the temple to worship the living God. They were coming to offer their yearly sacrifice to atone for sin. Aside from the clear religious underpinning, many wondered, and it would have only been natural, could this be the year that God would finally reveal the Messiah to his people? Though the city of Jerusalem itself was undeniably a a bit underwhelming, It is worth pointing out, not so with the temple. Herod's temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was an incredible sight to behold. According to historical records, the temple was completely overlaid with gold. Beyond this, because the temple mount was above the city, sitting up at the pinnacle of of Mount Moriah, historians record that the structure could be seen from up to 10 miles away glistening and the noonday sun. Now imagine, get yourself in the scene. Imagine the moment that Jesus and the mob of pilgrims caught that first twinkle. There she was, the temple, the house of God, the seat of religion, the source of their pride, their connecting point with their past, but a portal to heaven. The closer the people got, the more excited they became. Now the temple wasn't very large. That being said, Herod the Great had constructed a large complex surrounding the temple that encompassed approximately 35 acres of prime real estate. As Jesus and the crowds of pilgrims approached the temple, they would have specifically entered the city from the east gate and then gone into the outer courtyard of the Gentiles. It was also an area of approximately 18 acres. Once again, consider, upon entering the temple, what is it that Jesus would have seen? And don't forget, the temple was the most holy place in all of of Judaism. It was the very meeting place between God and mortal man. Well, John tells us that as Jesus entered the temple, he found, literally, he came upon those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Sadly, a place that was designed, that God intended for reverence, a place 
occupied with weighty spiritual matters. How sad it is that it had become a place for doing business. Aside from the people buying and the selling oxen and the sheep and the doves, animals they would use for their sacrifice, the scene was further tainted by these money changers. None of this was part of God's original design, his intent for the temple. Sad to say, religion had become big business. Now, I don't want to go on a tangent. And anytime someone says, I don't want to go on a tangent, but it means that they are about to go on a tangent. I promise I'm not. I'm going to make this quick. But there is a side observation. You know, it is a terrible thing when a church focuses more on money and business than facilitating people's relationship with Jesus. It's really a sad indictment that many of today's churches, largest churches, their models that they employ are proudly based upon savvy business practices where the bottom line gets relegated to both numbers and money, the bank accounts. Let me give you very quickly three terrible consequences when a church and business blend together. One, in such a dynamic, the purposes that God has for the church get totally convoluted. Two, when such a thing happens, it warps the functional purpose of a church making it more and more difficult for people to really cut through the business to encounter the living God. And the third consequence is it's such a terrible witness to the world around us. Don't forget, this was all taking place in the outer court of the Gentiles. It was the only part of the temple that the world could come to encounter the God of Israel. How sad that this is what the court of the Gentiles was occupied with. As Jesus enters the temple... After such a long journey, this is what he found. And as we're going to see in a minute, he wasn't very pleased. And he ends up acting accordingly. I know I speak for the other elders when I say that at Calvary 316, our bottom line will always be centered on people and ministry way more than business and money. Our focus is, is on building the kingdom of God, not our own little kingdom on this earth. Now, before I explain how it was that this place of worship had become a booming business, let me just take a quick moment and explain the pivotal players behind this religious racket that Jesus discovered here. According to first century Jewish historian Josephus, Though Annas had served as high priest from 6 to 15 AD for many reasons, the Romans had decided to remove him from office. And yet, while Annas had been stripped from his official capacity, he still remained in the game as the main power broker via the proxy influence of his five very corrupt sons. In actuality, his son-in-law, another character we'll come to find, his name being Caiaphas, had been given the official title of high priest, but Caiaphas really didn't possess any authority. Josephus actually tells us that Caiaphas, just as a figurehead, earned approximately $3 million a year. Not only was the temple and its business exclusively controlled by this one dominant family, But the scheme that they had cooked up to rip off the people had enabled him to to amass not only incredible wealth, but immense political power. 
everything about this was shady. Once again, many churches that turn into businesses, they do so for the exact same reason. The power and greed of one family. Now here's how the racket worked. It was required that during Passover, every family was to offer a spotless sacrifice to atone for their sins. Now, if you weren't able to bring your own sacrifice because of the journey or whatnot, one could be purchased from the priest at the temple. This was normal. If you did bring your own sacrifice, the animal would have to first undergo an inspection by the priest to be determined whether or not it was adequate, spotless. Now, as you can imagine, right? Because the priest had incentive for you to purchase one of their animals at, you know, a premium price, they were all too motivated to find something of a, of a disqualifying blemish. This is what more than, more than often resulted. Now, since most people had to purchase their offering at the temple, because, you know, it was the only way to really ensure you'd end up with a spotless sacrifice, the priests were able to jack up the rate effectively gouging people who are doing what? Coming to worship God and offer an atonement for their sin. Always remember, the racket of religion will never allow you to ever be good enough. Because if you could, you wouldn't need them. But you know, it, it, gets, it gets much worse than that. Not only would the sacrifice you, you brought be disqualified, But since God had specifically forbid any, quote, graven images in the Levitical law, Roman currency, because it had the image and likeness of Caesar, wasn't accepted on the Temple Mount. This meant a person not only had to purchase a sacrifice from the priests, but they were also required to exchange their local currency for a special temple coin. Now, you know where this is headed, right? Such a dynamic would allow for an exorbitant exchange rate, further screwing the people. As Jesus enters the temple, the outer courtyard of the Gentiles, this is the racket that greets him. A place of worship had not only become a place of business, but the business took advantage of people who were simply trying to worship God. What should have been reverent, which should have been a contemplative experience, offering a sacrifice for sin and all that went into that, that experience had tragically been turned into a trying and difficult process by men greedy for personal gain. Well, verse 15, we're told that that Jesus, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changer's money and overturned the tables, and said to those who sold doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, and John here quotes Psalm 69 verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up. In response to what greeted him, what he was witnessing in the temple, John tells us that Jesus, he does something kind of bizarre. We're told that he made a whip of cords. The idea is that Jesus didn't immediately react to the things that he was seeing in the temple. Instead, Jesus took the necessary time to act 
with both careful deliberation and thoughtful consideration. He didn't react. He took the time to react. Act with intention. (laughs) My point is that Jesus didn't fly off the rails in a fit of anger. Jesus didn't enter the temple and see red. Jesus instead was calm, cool, and collected. I imagine, here you have Jesus, who is no doubt outraged by what's occurring. He takes a deep breath, right? And he proceeds to walk around collecting some materials. After getting what he needs, he finds probably a quiet place to sit. And as he's watching everything that's happening, fuming inside, he's carefully weaving together strands of leather to form a weapon, a whip. In the King James Version, we read that Jesus actually made, quote, a scourge of small cords, which is very similar to the device used by the Romans in scourgings. The whole time that Jesus is weaving together these cords to make this whip, he's internally stewing at what's taking place in his father's house. As the scene plays out in my mind, and I know I'm taking a little license here, but as I see it, Jesus puts the finishing touches on this scourge. Once completed, he tightens it a little, makes sure that it would be durable, maybe even gives it a little test, a little whip here, a little whip there. He's now concluded this will suffice. And then what happens? He probably calmly gets to his feet, looks around, and boom, in a flash, what happens? He jumps into action. Jesus first physically drives out from the temple those who are selling sheep and oxen along with their livestock, the sheep and oxen. And once that task was complete, what happens? John tells us that Jesus then pours out the changer's money before overturning their tables. Jesus is a man on fire. He's relentless. You know, what a contrast, right? To many of the misconceptions that people have of Jesus. You know, the misconceptions that Jesus was kind of a, a, an anemic, scrawny, feminine man. This Jesus and John 2, he's not passive, he's aggressive. This Jesus is not even kill, but deeply passionate. Jesus isn't a pushover. He's a go-getter. He's not weak. He's tenacious. Jesus isn't playing peacemaker. He's not setting out to have a little conversation. Instead, what is he doing? He, He makes a whip, rolls up his sleeves, and picks a fight. Jesus is willing to act, to right a wrong. He advocates for those being taken advantage of. Jesus, friend, was a man's man. I mean, truthfully, people saw him as a revolutionary in his day. Jesus was the type of man that men gave up everything to follow. Please understand, the intensity established in the Greek language, what John's describing, it's very, very strong. This word translated to drive out. It means to violently expel. There's no initial conversation. Jesus is acting with premeditation, 
and he's using a weapon to commit an act of violence. Gandhi would have been appalled. In this moment, Jesus is more Malcolm X than MLK. Aside from all of this, the Greek word we have translated as overturned, it describes the act of churning over soil with a plow. Jesus didn't just turn over the tables. He ground them to a powder. He destroyed them. And then when John says that he poured out the money, it can literally mean the money gushed forth. He didn't care where it went. Jesus is active and he's angry, but this is important. The entire time, he's also measured and in complete control. Pastor Ed Taylor, he makes this observation. He says, this wasn't an outburst of wrath, but rather it was righteous indignation. Really, put yourself in the scene. Don't forget, it's Passover. I mean, the populations of Jerusalem have swelled to capacity. People are excited. Anticipation is in the air. The Romans are a bit on guard. The temple is packed with pilgrims. Children are running around. Animals are everywhere. Money is changing hands. The bantering back and forth. And then, in the midst of this scene, out of nowhere, Jesus, who is not known by the masses, he flies off the top rope, brandishing a homemade whip. He goes on the offensive. He goes on the attack. Now imagine you're there. Mob of people. You don't see what's going on. But a commotion ensues, right? At first, you, along with everyone else, have no idea what's going on. But then people are starting to scurry. Those involved in the racket, they're diving for cover. But then they start to scramble as Jesus is driving their livestock from the building. The money changers, they're aghast as Jesus kicks over and smashes their tables, scattering their ill-gotten gains everywhere. And all the while Jesus is doing this, he's crying out, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. What a scene, right? And you can imagine, understandably, that people are at first taken back. Though everyone hated the racket, though everyone hated the fact that this process to offer a sacrifice had become so unnecessarily cumbersome. I mean, it was what it was. Like, I mean, really, what could be done? Who dare stand up to the temple cartel? Sure, I'm taking a little license in how I read the story. I get that. But let me ask, don't you find it a little odd that no one attempts to stop Jesus? that seem a little little odd from the text? No one challenges him. Now, personally, I believe that the reason this is the case is that after the initial shock subsided, once people really started to see what was happening, what Jesus was doing, I think the people started cheering him on. They started rallying around him. Why? Because Jesus was defending them. Imagine you had come to the temple You don't have too much money. You had brought a sacrifice. That sacrifice, you knew it was spotless. It was yours. It was your gift to God. But then some crook said it it had a blemish. You don't see it, but it was. 
And then you went to buy one of their animals, but you were kicked off of that because you had to go exchange money. By the end of it, you had ended up with a terrible little lamb and you were broke. You were getting screwed. You see, people started cheering Jesus on because they hated what was happening too. Jesus was boldly doing what no one dared. He was taking on the establishment, attacking corruption head on. No love was lost, right? When the multitude saw Jesus go after these underhanded money changers, about time they all reasoned. Now, I can't say this for sure, but it's likely that behind the kick drum, screeching electric guitar, slap of the bass, I imagine John, John was whispering something like this, raise up your ear, I'll drop the style and clear, it's the beats and the lyrics they fear, the rage is relentless, we need a movement with a quickness, you are the witness of change and to counteract, we gotta take the power back, and then Peter's next to him saying, yeah, we got to take the power back. And Nathaniel's like, yeah, we got to take the power. Okay, it's a Rage Against the Machine song. You can look it up on your own. It was fitting for the moment. Now, with this in mind, yes, Rage Against the Machine, this is the only church that has those quotes in their Bible study. Now, with this in mind, I also think that the inaction of the establishment also kind of makes sense, right? Like, once it was evident that Jesus had the support of the mob. I mean, what could these charlatans do to stop him? The people were behind Jesus. Jesus also held the higher moral ground. They knew that if they rushed in to counteract Jesus, they risked a riot. And beyond all of that, I'm sure the Romans kind of stood back with a measure of delight, a little glee, knowing Annas was taking it on the chin. I mean, why would they intervene to save the temple cartel any money? Well, after cleansing the temple of its defilement, and presumably once things kind of settle down, a calm returns to the scene, John tells us that the people want Jesus to explain himself. Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But, and John kind of adds this as an after the fact, Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said when he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Notice, in response to what Jesus has just done, the people don't ask him why, (laughs) because they knew why. The system was corrupt. It was wrong. Jesus' actions had been completely justified. Instead of asking a reason why, the people come to Jesus and they ask him this. They ask Upon what authority are you doing these things? This is what they mean by by this this question. What sign do you show us since you do these things? They're asking, what are your actions supposed to be communicating? What are you trying to tell us? 
Look at Jesus' response. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Not, Not only does John tell us in the moment his audience was confused, to a degree rightfully so, thinking Jesus was talking about the physical temple, but he adds that it wasn't until after the resurrection that even the disciples understood, quote, that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. As I mentioned in our introduction, don't forget the context for this event. The event of Jesus clearing out the temple is the miracle of Jesus transforming water into wine. It's not an accident. One follows the other. Not only did Jesus' miracle here contrast religious, religion's failure to address man's internal thirst, the, the changing of the water into wine, but the religious system here, as illustrated in cleansing the temple, had become now more of a hindrance than a help. Beyond being ineffective, the point was is that religion had proven detrimental. People were coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice to God for sin. And yet, aside from the sacrifice itself, only providing a temporary atonement, a temporary cleansing, the process had become completely warped by man's involvement. An entire process instituted by God for its deep symbolic meaning to occur on Passover, no less, had been hijacked. The meaning had been lost. This is what made Jesus so upset. People were there going through the process, not understanding what the process was all about, what it meant. The Feast of Passover was to be a celebration of God's deliverance of man from the bondage of sin. And this act of sacrificing an innocent, spotless lamb to temporarily atone for sin intended to foreshadow the ultimate day when God would provide a permanent sacrifice for sin. In clearing out the temple, you know what Jesus was effectively doing? He had already in the water and the wine scenario illustrated that religion was inadequate. Now he sees that it's, that it's detrimental, so he cleans it out. Jesus is shutting down shop on Judaism. You see, man no longer needed to come to a physical location, this temple, to encounter the living God. Why? Because God had come in human flesh. This is what Jesus meant when he refers to himself as a temple. Why come to a building to encounter God? Instead, you're to come to a person. Man could come before God by coming to Jesus. Additionally, man no longer needed to offer a temporary sacrifice. That's why he drove them from the building. You see, as the Lamb of God, Jesus came to be offered once and for all for the sins of the world. His body, as he says, would be destroyed. But his resurrection would follow. He says, in three days, I will raise it up. Even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was keenly aware of his future destiny. Now, there are some scholars who say John here is recording at the beginning of his gospel an event the other gospel writers place at the end of theirs. And it's true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record an almost identical moment when Jesus clears out the temple. But they place it 
at the end of Jesus' week of passion, the final Passover, the one that would result in his crucifixion, the third Passover. Now, while there are undoubtedly major similarities, I don't believe the events are the same. Don't forget, John is writing much later. He's writing with the advantage of reading the Synoptic Gospel. He's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's read the account of Jesus cleansing the temple at the third Passover. John was present. And yet it's almost as though now that he's writing later, he wants everyone to realize he's done this before at the first Passover, which means here, because of John's intent, that the repetition of the event is deeply significant. Consider, Jesus transforms water into wine, begins his ministry, and heads to Jerusalem for Passover. Passover number one, to clear out the temple. Jesus then specifically skips the next Passover, the second one, John 6, 4, only to come back to Jerusalem for the third Passover at the end of his ministry. And what does he find? Nothing had changed at all. The same racket remained. So Jesus again clears out the temple before offering himself for the sins of the world. Like in a sense, Jesus began his ministry declaring that religion was of no use. He clears out the temple. It's a waste. And then he ends his ministry with the exact same declaration. Why? Because the people hadn't gotten it. Friend, I need to say, that if you hate religion, like if religion really sours you, if it really turns you off, I get it. If religion, you don't like it because of the obvious corruption, men enriching themselves off the sacrifices of others, the racket of never measuring up, the business and the money. I want you to know Jesus is right there with you. He finds those same things deplorable. But I must say, Never make the mistake of allowing religion to taint your perspective of Jesus. Jesus came to do something different. Not outward cleansing and internal transformation, water that became wine. He came to be the place where man could encounter God and his love and his grace. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He came to put an end to religion and establish a relationship with him as the only basis for everlasting life. No one's asking you to become religious. All we're asking you is to meet Jesus. One more thought before we wrap things up, and we're running out of time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes, quote, Do you not know that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You know, one of the most obvious applications of this story is the simple reality that Jesus actually cares what happens in his temple. He cared what happened in this temple. He cared what would happen to his own body. And now that the Spirit indwells you and you're the temple of the living God, he cares what's happening in your life as well. And note, Jesus will act according to what he finds, to what he comes upon. I, I want to ask you this morning, just consider, 
Are there things in your life that Jesus wants to drive out or even possibly overturn? Will you let him or will you resist him? As we close...